Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Roy Field here. Last week, I saw the 75th anniversary of the docking of the Empire Windrush in Tilbury Docks. Now, in one or two episodes of The Things That Made England, I have referred to this as being the start of post-war forward slash modern England. And for my other podcast, How Do You Make a Conquer the World, I interviewed a wonderful gentleman, Anthony Brown. And this is such an English story. Some 18% of the population of the United Kingdom is now non-white. They are the direct descendants of people who came um, on the Empire Windrush and those generations afterwards, that I thought this would be an apt episode, a slight departure from the normal format for the things that made England. Thank you. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. This is the story of how one small island conquered the world. Jamaican Patwa. And a fair start, a Safa Pound. Usain Bolt is also out well. Here they come down the track. Usain Bolt! It's a story of music, sport and style. How its rhythms, athletes and language went global. Pull up, pull up! This is how Jamaica conquered the world. Seventy-five years ago, on June 22nd, 1948, the Empire Windrush docked in Tilbury, marking a pivotal moment in British history. To celebrate the start of modern post-war Britain, in this episode we delve into one man's journey to prove his British citizenship amidst a hostile environment. This episode owes a debt of thanks to journalist Amelia Gentleman, who shed light on the plight of tens of thousands of British West Indians facing wrongful deportation. The Windrush scandal came to the forefront of the public consciousness. It was Amelia who put me in touch with Anthony. My name is Anthony Brown. I'm in Wigan in the United Kingdom, which is in the northwest of England. I was born in Jamaica, St Andrews, my earliest memories of Jamaica are playing in the streets, going to the shops, and being bitten by a dog, and going to school, where I remember first learning to write with a slate and a piece of uh, chalk. At that time, my father was in England, or England, as we used to say. <laughs> and I remember my brothers, every time an airplane or a helicopter flew over, they always say, is daddy there? Because their memories of him would have been him taking off in a plane coming to England. So he was in England at the time. As a young child, England didn't mean anything to me. Uh, all I knew was that uh, I was on a boat. It was going to be sailing to England. And I remember there being movies on the boat. 
and various games. And then we docked at Southampton. My dad was there to meet us and took us on a train from Southampton to Manchester. I remember falling asleep on the train and waking up and there's a BBC camera crew filming us. They've come to seek work in Britain and are ready and willing to do any kind of job that will help the motherland along the road to prosperity. So let's make them very welcome as they begin their new life over here. Because they were doing some documentary about people coming from the Caribbean. It was around April 67. The weather wasn't too bad, but we soon found out <laughs> what we were in for. When winter came and my little fingers were frozen to bits. It was fine at first. We had nice neighbours. But when we got to school, you had to be aware of what colour you were. Because people would come to you and say, are you a blue or are you a red? Now, what they were talking about were the football teams. And if you supported Manchester City and the Reds were asking you, you'd get beaten up (laughs) if you said blue. And if you said you were red and the blues were asking you, kid get beaten up we soon found out where the rivalries were but then on top of that you had people calling you names by color and so on but having two older brothers one of the things they felt was their duty was to teach their little brother to fight so when i arrived in the uk i was a blue but then our family moved to stratford which was just a stone's throw from Manchester United's football ground and my neighbours was even one of the players from Manchester United and we were just starstruck by him. His name was Sammy McElroy. Kids cross, O'Neill, best and McElroy! That then is my excuse for becoming a red. <laughs> After a while, the three of us we were able to establish ourselves and it really didn't bode well for people who called his name. The tradition was you'd offer them a fight and you'd go down the back alley and take your jumpers off and beat seven bells out of each other and then afterwards the tradition was you'd shake hands and that was it. If there were any issues, we'd settle it. So in 73, my dad decided that he was going to take up a job at the College of Art, Science and Technology as a lecturer. And I had two brothers and two sisters. Two sisters were left here and an older brother was left here. And myself and Paul were taken back to Jamaica. And a repeat of what happened when we came to England in the first place happened when we went back to Jamaica. People said, you're English. (laughs) You're an English boy. And we'd get into fights about that. But again, after a while, we settled and we established ourselves. And my brother had to do the same routine. The bigger boys he'd take care of. And after a few fights, things settled in. So I got the impression then that people put things down to this issue of race. But oftentimes it's just about being new and finding a way to be accepted. And also, I found that being in Jamaica, I learned a lot about my history, about my culture. Whereas when I went to school in the UK, I remember that looking through the history books at one lesson, I couldn't find anybody who was black. And that really troubled me. But when I got to Jamaica, 
We learned about the national heroes, we learned about history. Those four years in Jamaica were really important in terms of development because I'd always wondered, why did my dad take me from the UK, which is supposed to have the best education system and so on, take me back to Jamaica? But later on in life, I realised that there was a difference between people who had gone to school in Jamaica and people who had went to the school here. When I came back, my first job was on the milk rounds. And eventually, after a few years, I went to college and I'd continued working with the dairy. And eventually, they asked me if I wanted to take on a franchise. They gave me credit to buy the franchise from the dairy. And then I employed my sister and friends. And we built up a business after a while, I sold it and made a huge profit and then went into property. That's how I started to develop my business activities. That failed in the early 90s. Interest rates went through the roof. My mortgages had to be paid and it was difficult. Things failed and I decided then to get a job. That job was in regeneration. So I became chief executive of the Mosside Union Business Federation. So it was an inner city area of Manchester that was getting funds in from the government to knock down the old houses, build new houses. Got married in early 90s to a girl from Wigan, had two children, two boys, George and Lewis. Both have done very well. One's graduated and he's working in London from Goldsmiths University, the other's at Oxford doing mathematics. Before I was growing my businesses, I was at college and I remember wanting to go on to university to do law. I'd been told by the college that they thought that I was an overseas student, but I'd always felt myself to be British because when I came to England, I was very young. You're influenced by the culture. And when I went back to Jamaica, I always missed my friends and I always told my mum that I wanted to go back to England and again meeting boys at uh, school who picked on me because I was English that reinforced the idea that you're British even though I was born in Jamaica but then eventually my mum decided that she would allow me to go back and so I came back in 77 when I was just 17 so I had always felt that I was British so when I wrote to the Home Office to ask them about my status because I wanted to go to university, they said that I wasn't British. And more than that, I needed to report to Manchester Airport to be deported. That was just a complete and total shock. Told my brother, my two sisters, and they were shocked because they'd stayed and so nothing had affected them. But the Home Office said, because I'd been out of the country for more than two years, I'd lost my residential status under the 1971 Immigration Act. Effectively, I'd only been out of the country 10 months, more than two years. And for that, they were saying that I was to be deported. I told my friends, told the community, and at the time there were a number of campaigns going about deportations. We were told to go to the law centre and somebody called Steve Cohen, who was a lawyer there, helped us. And he said that we could mount a notice deportation campaign. We contacted the West Indian Community Centre. There was someone who worked at a place called the 8411 Centre. His name was Gus John. He chaired a committee that managed my anti-deportation campaign. 
and we got to meet with my MP at the time. He wrote to Margaret Thatcher, who was the Prime Minister at the time, who had been saying that we were going to be swamped by immigrants. And she decided that I could have indefinite leave to remain. I was allowed to stay. But for me, I felt it was like being a second-class citizen because I didn't travel very much. On the occasion that I did travel, when you're coming back through the airport, it would say British and then foreigners. (laughs) You had to go through the foreigner. (laughs) You had to face that humiliation every time. And yeah, to me, but you just had to put up with it, really. When I came to the UK in 67, I believe I came on my mother's passport. And I remember my mother having one of those black British passports. I know now that when Jamaica got its independence, Section 2.2 of the Jamaica Independence Act that was passed by Parliament here in the UK revoked the United Kingdom and Colonies citizenship of all the people who were born in Jamaica. Unbeknownst to my mother, her citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies would have been revoked. In 1948, there was the British Nationality Act, and that said people were citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies. So my dad would have come over without restrictions, and then he would be here rebuilding the country because he was a civil engineer. His thanks would have been to revoke his citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies in 1962 which then would have affected me, his son. But I wouldn't have known that at the time. My mother wouldn't have known that at the time. It was only in later years, when I started studying law, that I understood all of this and traced back all the things that had happened and felt that at some time I needed to try and do something about it. I became aware that I was having issues because of my status Before 2010, I was threatened with deportation in the 80s, and I had a keen ear for issues around migration. And I noticed that every time coming up to an election, both parties would ratchet up the rhetoric about immigration. And in 2008, I remember being out of work and finally getting a job and being told that I needed my passport. Now, that was the first time I'd ever heard of anything like getting a job and having to produce your passport. And of course, because I hadn't travelled very much, my passport had expired. And when I showed them the passport, although it had the stamp in it, indefinitely to remain, they said, oh, we can't accept this because your passport has expired. They said, we'll hold the job open for you, but you've got to get a new passport. So I had to send back my passport to Jamaica to have it renewed. And then when it was renewed, I had to send it to the home office to have the indefinite leave stamp returned. And by that time, it had taken months and the job went. That was under a Labour government and they passed the 2007 UK Borders Agency Act. They had decided to destroy the landing cards of the Windrush generation. When the Conservative government came into power, Conservative government had seen this plan to destroy them and executed the plan. Conservative Party 
talked about having net migration down to the tens of thousands. Now, we were aware that there were these issues about net migration and there were the issues about free movement, European people coming and being able to get work and being in, in competition with people who were born here who wanted those jobs too. The narrative that people are aware of is one where the Conservative government came to power and created a hostile environment. But for me, with my story, a hostile environment has always been in situ. I remember Margaret Thatcher coming to power and saying that we were being... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Swamped by immigrants and that created a hostile environment. People are really rather afraid that this country might be rather swamped by people with a different culture. But if there's any fear that it might be swamped, people are going to react and be rather hostile to those coming in. And I remember being threatened with deportation, and that was very hostile to me. And I remember, over the years, being terrified every time I was stopped by the police because I knew that my situation was a bit more precarious than the ordinary person who probably was born here or had British citizenship and it was very hostile and terrifying for me so I had that but for 40 years and Theresa May coming along and talking about hostile environment to me wasn't making any difference to my lived experience we want to ensure that only legal migrants have access to the labour market, free health services, housing, bank accounts and driving licences. And this is not just about making the UK a more hostile place for illegal migrants. It is also about fairness. Those who play by the rules and work hard do not want to see businesses gaining an unfair advantage through the exploitation of illegal labour. They don't want to see our valuable public services paid for by the taxpayer used and abused by illegal migrants. And my not being able to get a job because of not having my passport up to date was a shock uh, because I was living in my own country. You usually show your passport at the border. What on earth am I doing showing a passport to get a job? That for me and for many other people, was a hostile act. And then we got news of Jamaicans particularly being rounded up and put on a plane and being deported. And that made me think, what's happening? I need to do something about my own situation. But there was this fear that if I tried, what would they come up with and say, oh, you shouldn't be here after all if we're going to deploy it. So that memory of what happened to me in the 80s made me a bit cautious about approaching the office again to try to do anything about my status. 
Inside this West London immigration centre, up to 50 people are spending their final hours in the UK. This after years, and in some cases, decades, in a country they have called home. They'll be leaving on the first deportation charter flight to the Caribbean since the Windrush scandal first broke. Among its passengers, father of three, Owen Hazley, who was granted leave to remain in the UK at the age of four. Wow, it's scary. It's ter- you know, scary, terrifying. Today, from inside the detention centre, he told me of his fears at being deported to an island he hasn't set foot on for four decades. Just basically going back to a place that I've never been back to for 41 years. You know, so I don't know Jamaica. I can't even remember Jamaica when I left. I was four years old because I've integrated into the UK torn away from our family, torn away from our children, torn away from our, you know, lives and sent somewhere that we've never been back to. It's believed the plane will leave at some point tomorrow. Campaigners say the government is ripping families apart. Beverly Booth has been here for 40 years. She came as a teenager from Jamaica in 1979 to join her parents and says she was given the right to stay here. But after the Home Office told her they can't find her records, she was threatened with deportation. We are contacting you because the Home Office told you you no longer have the right to remain in the UK. Since then, she was given a temporary right to stay, but that now has also run out. Life has become very difficult financially. Even the NHS is chasing her for medical bills. She fears eviction and deportation. I feel more than betrayed because we were invited here. We didn't come. Our parents were invited here to come here. And when they come here, they would expect better treatment. And now we're here and we've done what we have to do, build up the country. Like they want to say, we don't want you here. Tonight, the government admitted that many of the registration documents from when the so-called Windrush generation arrived have now been destroyed. Even so, they've promised to deal with all cases that come to light sensitively and swiftly. Roll on to 2018 and there were these stories in the press. The Guardian, Amelia Gentleman, had been writing about what happened to people in terms of them being put in detention and deported. And there were complete horror stories. And then when the heads of government came, Jamaican Prime Minister, Barbados Prime Minister and so on, they wanted to see the Prime Minister to find out what was going on. Eventually, she invited them to Downing Street. Big problems usually bring big apologies and the Prime Minister's personal involvement today reflected the scale of this crisis and the urgent need to reassure Commonwealth heads of state that this mess is being sorted. I want to apologise to you today because we are genuinely sorry for any anxiety that has been caused. But the Caribbean leaders left no clearer as to whether there had been any deportations under the new rules although they were gracious about the Prime Minister's reassurance. We accept the Prime Minister's apology, um, and I believe that the right thing is being done at this time. And I heard British Prime Minister apologising. She said that she was going to provide a pathway for people to get their status back. The Prime Minister's apology follows the Home Secretary's apology yesterday. Everyone is sorry, but confusion remains, as does anger. Here at Westminster... Thousands of British men and women denied their rights in this country under her watch in the Home Office. 
Can she tell the House how many have been denied help under the National Health Service? How many have denied pensions? How many have lost their job? This is a day of national shame. And it has come about because of a hostile environment policy that was begun under her Prime Minister. She said that she was going to provide a pathway for people to get their status back and she was going to pay compensation. Should I believe them? Because I knew that applied to me, but I still had this caution about going forward because I thought, will she then say, ah, gotcha? But the Jamaican Prime Minister, there was an announcement that he was going to have a town hall meeting in London. We drove down. There's about 2,000 Jamaicans there. He talked about what he'd said to Theresa May and so on, and he was saying that people should contact the helpline and regularise their status. After the town hall meeting, I went to the back entrance where he was, and I actually met him, and I said to him, are you sure this is something we can trust? And he told me that, yeah, and he'd be monitoring. The day after, I rang the helpline, and they started to ask all these questions, and I said, Unless you could be talking to me about citizenship, then I don't really feel that I I should be having a conversation. Anyway, they called me back and then uh, they said that they did want to talk about citizenship. And eventually I was able to apply to what's called the WINRA scheme and they were able to give me my citizenship back without charge. They're offering to pay compensation, but I have a whole different philosophy from what everybody else talks about with regards to compensation. I'm advocating that they should be paying reparations and that the laws that were passed in the first place that apply to me, my dad, should never have been passed and they should pay reparations for that act, regardless of whether there was any detriment or suffering from it. Because to take away somebody's identity is a pretty serious matter. And the government needs to recognise that. And this is why we are calling for a Winrush Act that actually expresses an apology from Parliament because a politician just saying they're sorry is neither here nor there for me. Parliament needs to pass a law to say it apologises. And it needs to recognise that those laws against its own citizens, because that's what we were, was wrong. Now, for those people who have been put in detention, then they need to be compensated. For those people who have lost their jobs, they need to be compensated. But there needs to be reparations and compensation. And that is one of the remedies that we're asking for in the judicial review. At the moment, we're fighting the Home Office. There might be 33,000 employees of the Home Office, but in the courtroom, there's just the judge their advocate and our advocate and that for me is the fight if somebody wanted to distill what i felt about being british or jamaican i would say to them they needed to know a little bit of history and they needed to know that it was oliver cromwell who sent the english navy to jamaica to take it from the spanish and then they brought africans there to create wealth for the British Empire. So in 1655, Jamaica became part of the empire. Jamaica's been part of the empire longer than Scotland has. Jamaica is really a little part of Britain. If people understand that and understand that 
the crest for Jamaica is still the red ensign. MPs in Jamaica still swear allegiance to the Queen and her heirs and successors. They will see and understand there's little difference about what is a Jamaican and what is British because some Jamaicans will even see themselves because they've been part of the empire longer than Scotland are as being more British than the British. If you understand the history and the culture and the traditions of Jamaica, you'll see that my attitude is probably more British when you compare it with the average person. I would probably be more British than they are because they probably, on average, wouldn't know the history and the traditions as I would know them because we were brought up on them in school, whereas they probably wouldn't have been in their schools. But in my school, Jamaica College, the traditions are so British, it's more British than the British. What I feel is that the Winrus scandal, as it then became known, is something that began decades ago and started with what they did with my dad in revoking citizenship and then putting in place discriminatory laws like the 71 Immigration Act, the problems that uh, they created with the British Nationality Act in 1981. They could have addressed a lot of the problems that they created with taking away citizenship from people who were already living in the UK. If you are living here as a citizen of this country, which you have every right to do because your ancestors have been contributing but enslaved for hundreds of years to build this country, and then they revoke your citizenship and just leave you here as a second-class citizenship, then pass other laws that mean you need to produce your passport to get a job or get NHS treatment and so on. That is down to a systemic failing of the, of the British state. Philosophically, I, I think that it's a bit of a cheek, really, to ask people who have contributed so much as to whether they feel that they belong or not. <laughs> the, the blood of their ancestors has paid for this place many times over. So it's 2023, and very obviously the events that Anthony talks about really are 2018. So in a recent report, the Independent Review of the Windrush scandal criticised the UK's government immigration policy for its inadequate response to Caribbean immigrants wrongly targeted as illegal immigrants. Again, this is 2023 now. Wendy Williams has highlighted institutional ignorance and thoughtfulness towards race as contributing factors in this whole farrago. Crucial recommendations including better race training and increased diversity in senior positions were neglected by the UK government. The compensation programme for victims, something which Anthony did kind of talk about, has faced criticisms and delays. The head of the Windrush Inquiry expressed disappointment as the UK government has confirmed the abandonment of key commitments. Out of the 15,000 eligible individuals for the compensation, only 1,518 as of March 2023 have actually received compensation from the UK government. This has raised concerns about the scheme's efficacy. 
Human Rights Watch has described the scheme as failing and delaying justice for its claimants. And this ongoing neglect of the basic human rights of British citizens is set against a backdrop of the 75th anniversary of the Empire Windrush pulling into dock at Tilbury. Truly the moment of the foundation of modern post-war Britain. Amelia Gentleman, a journalist renowned for her tireless efforts, played a crucial role in bringing the Windrush scandal to light. Her in-depth reporting in The Guardian exposed the injustices faced by the Windrush generation, many of whom who had lived in Britain for decades, only to find themselves wrongly targeted by deportation measures. By acknowledging Gentleman's sterling work, we play tribute to her dedication and the impact of her reporting in raising awareness about the systemic mistreatment faced by British West Indians and the urgent need for reform. All right. It's been lovely to talk to you. And, and after saying that we must be distant cousins and whatever, yeah, you, you look like my cousin. Is your family from St. Anne? No, St. Thomas and St. Andrew. Okay. There's a lot of us Browns in Jamaica. But then again, my grandfather used to wander all over the island, so you never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but I do one thing share with you, and that's that view that Jamaicans have conquered the world. I've thought that for a long time, and I've just always marveled. We have the same little Kalawa. It's not that we love to fight, but we will fight if you try to fight, and we will fight. Anthony Brown, listen, sir, it's been a, an honour and a privilege 